Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the Brian Dainsbury Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. I'm your host, Brian Dainsbury, lead pastor of Alliance Bible Church, located in beautiful Southeast Wisconsin. Continuing today, thoughts on politics. Um, I think I put this out there as a caveat in part one. These are certainly initial reflections on this as I try to do a deep dive to thinking and uh, thinking about these things. Um, I want to review a couple of things from the first installment of this in case uh, you didn't catch that. When I talk about politics, I'm talking about a specific definition of it. Jonathan Lehman defines it this way, and I think it's a good way to look at it. And he refers to politics as having three, three components to a definition. It's the institutional activity of governance over an entire population, backed by the power of coercion, which in varying degrees will be regarded as legitimate. So when I talk about politics, this is what I'm talking about. Institutional activity of governance over an entire population backed by the power of coercion, which in varying degrees will be regarded as legitimate. That's important to keep in mind, that definition, as we reflect on this. And so last time I talked about three kind of, they were not really related, uh, but sort of random reflections on politics. The first was that the line between religion and politics may not be as hard and fast as we think. Because when you think about it, the political world is nothing more or less than a battleground of gods, each vying to push the levers of power in its favor. Um, everybody is religious. Even, even the atheist is religious. Now, atheists will probably object to that uh, because they'll say, well, we don't believe in a God or we don't have a sacred text. That's, that may be true, but when it comes to religion's impact on politics, religious people, essentially, it boils down to not um, worshiping some deity or subscribing to some sacred text, but even for religious people, they have a way of seeing the world and recommendations for how to live in it. Yes, it's shaped by their religious convictions, but when you boil it down, the impact of their religion on their politics is simply that. It's a way of seeing the world with recommendations for how to live in it. Uh, so their way of seeing the world ends up producing policy recommendations when it comes to governance, when it comes to politics. Atheists, agnostics, the non-religious, it's the same way. They may not have a deity they subscribe to or a sacred text that they follow, but they do have a way of seeing the world and they provide recommendations for how to live in it. They produce policy recommendations for, for politics. And so it's, it's very difficult to completely separate religion and politics. The, the line between those two may not be as hard and fast as we think it to be. Jonathan Lehman puts it this way, what a nation's constitution and laws represent is an amalgam of competing values and religious commitments cobbled together over time by compromise and negotiation. In the battleground of gods called the public square, the law books present a record of which gods won a majority when the vote was taken or which could secure a high court decision. 
So here's what I'm wondering. If that, if the above is true, if that is true, then all churches are political to some extent and politics is frankly religious. Now this does not mean that there should be overlap of church and state. That's not what I'm contending for, but I think we need to realize that to some extent churches are political and politics is religious. There are two examples that make this clear. I used talked about this last time, abortion and gay marriage can kind of bring some clarity to, to this. Uh, Abortion was a so-called religious issue long before it was a so-called political issue. Same goes for gay marriage. Uh, marriage, The marriage issue was a biblical issue long before it was a political issue. And so if a preacher was to preach on those topics today, uh, he'd probably, probably be called a political sermon. Though those issues were biblical long before they were political. Second, I offered a starting point for prioritizing religio-political views. Um, okay, so we our Christians are inescapably political by virtue of how we see the world. Hopefully, based on a careful study of the Bible, we make appeals for how the institutional activity of governance over the population is to function. Um, the Bible does not proscribe a particular form of government. It doesn't say a democratic republic or a constitutional republic is the only way to appropriately organize government or a monarchy is the only way to organize government. It doesn't deal with forms of government, but it does say quite a bit to governing leaders, quite a bit, who they should be, what they should do. Um, I think it does say something about laws, what they should be. And so I provided a hierarchy for how to think about um, priorities when it comes to um, laws and governing authorities and how uh, they all work together. The, the hierarchy starts with justice. It proceeds to law and then proceeds to governing authorities in order, in that order, uh, laying out a hierarchy of submission. Okay. So justice is first by that. I mean, biblical justice, now, that's a massive landscape to survey, but a good place to start is the Law of Moses. One of the things the Law of Moses accomplishes is it reveals to us the nature of God's character. The, the law he handed to Israel was not random. It wasn't arbitrary. It was an outworking of his essence and being. And we know that God is perfectly just. So if we want to know what justice is, start with the Law of Moses. And we should remember that the Law of Moses is the only flawless codified system of law ever possessed by humanity. So this is what I mean by justice. It's justice according to the Bible. It's justice according to the character of God. The second concept is law. And this is where I think Martin Luther King Jr. was spot on. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he wrote that a just law is one that squares with the moral law of God. King was processing what human laws are just and what, uh, what human laws are unjust. And his argument, and I think he's right, is that a just human law is one that squares with the moral law of God. So he's thinking of laws in terms of biblical justice. He's starting with the moral law of God with biblical justice, which is the standard of justice and asking, does this human law codified in my country or community square with the moral law of God? And then the third concept is governing authorities. Governing authorities are the people you voted for. You know, the question I'm wrestling with, with regard to governing authorities is, do they view themselves as subordinate to biblical justice and the laws that ought to be birthed out of biblical justice. 
another way to put this is the Bible does not teach governing authorities are above the law. They are subordinate to, they report to the law. And then third, last time we talked about the limits of just laws. Uh, We have to remember as we contend for these things in the public square, we've got to remember the limits, thinking God's thoughts after him, imaging Christ to the world will never be achieved through the establishment and enforcement of just laws. The Bible storyline could not be clearer on that. What the law of Moses was unable to do, Jesus does through his work and spirit. This is why politics is secondary to the mission of the church. This is why I would rather see my neighbor converted to Christ than to my political point of view. This is why there will be Republicans and Democrats in hell. So we have to remember the limits of just laws in politics. Now today... Today, I want to push on this a little further. In fact, this is something I'm preaching on. If this should go live on the 15th, I'll be preaching on this tomorrow on the 16th. I want to talk about the Noahic Covenant. The little known and little talked about Noahic Covenant. God's covenant with Noah. Now, we think of Noah, we think of the flood. We think of the animals on the big boat. God preserving Noah and his family. That's what we think about. But we don't often think about the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. Maybe the rainbow we think about, the sign of the covenant. Yes, but what was the covenant about? Remember, when a a covenant makes obligations of all parties involved. And so when God formed this covenant with Noah, there were obligations that God committed himself to, and there were obligations that Noah and his family committed themselves to. God's obligation was to preserve the human race. That's basically his obligation with the covenant. He's basically saying to Noah and his family, uh, I'm not going to do that again. It's a one and done. Destruction of the, of the world's population is a one and done. This is not going to happen again. And then Noah and his family had some obligations. And if you read the text, you realize it's not just Noah and his family, but all his descendants, which means by extension, all of humanity down to us today. In other words, it's the covenant God made with Noah is not specific to God's people, like God's covenant with Moses and Israel. That's specific to God's people. The new covenant in Christ is specific to God's people. God's covenant with Noah is with the entire human race. And nowhere in scripture are we taught that the Noahic Noahic covenant has been replaced or eliminated. And Noah and his family, and therefore all the human race in this covenant, were given a threefold ethic. Procreation, eating, and administering justice. Procreation, eating, and administering justice. This threefold, David Van Drennen writes, this threefold Noahic ethic implies a number of activities beyond what the text says explicitly. I propose that the Noahic covenant commissions human beings to form a variety of institutions and that common political communities properly arise as they carry out this commission. Okay, so I want you to keep in mind the Noahic covenant is binding on all of humanity. These are God's expectations for all of humanity, and particularly those of us who belong to God, who walk with Christ, we have an obligation to point this out. That'll be a future podcast. Point this out even to those who do not follow Christ that we do have an obligation before our creator 
to attend to these three, this threefold ethic that manifests itself in various institutions that logically arise if we are being faithful to the outworking of this threefold ethic. Let me take them one at a time. So I talked about, I talked about procreation. Procreation is incumbent on the human race. So what sort of institution arises as a result of reproduction? Familial institutions. <laughs> Van Drennen writes, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth demands an interconnected set of activities, particularly the procreation, nurture, and training of children. What is needed is not just a proper context for sexual intercourse, but also a setting in which adults can care for the children procreated and teach them how to live productively in the world. These institutions that serve as forums for sexual intercourse, procreation, and the nurture and training of children are precisely what we call families. In other words, when God created this covenant with Noah, part of what he had in mind is the family. God's expectation of the human race is that the human race will be pro-family. And keep in mind, this covenant is still binding today. Now, I, it is an absolute travesty <laughs> that this would even be controversial today. It's a relatively simple argument to make that human beings ought to be pro-family. Now, I realize that there are extenuating circumstances, there are biological um, realities that prevent the family thing from happening for some people. That I'm not ignoring that. I'm just putting out there what God's expectation of the human race in general would be. Pro-family, husband, wife, children. This familial institution is God's design for humanity, not just Christians, but humanity. What about the second aspect to the Noahic covenant, eating? What sort of institutions or associations are needed to ensure the world's population is fed? There's probably a whole bunch of different titles or labels you could come up with to describe this, but they're engaged in things like exploring and farming and building and technological innovation, all the things that go into feeding or seeing to it that families are fed. I mean, think about the necessary systems that ensure the survival of families. The creation and sustenance of these associations is necessary for human beings to maintain fidelity to the Noahic Covenant. So, we, I mean, we can quibble about which institutions better serve a given population. I mean, the application of this principle to actual policy is extremely nuanced, but the overarching mandate given to humanity is clear. Families need to be fed. Notice also that in this ethic, God has given human beings freedom to eat plants and meat. So, political entities that impose restrictions pertaining to consuming plants and meat onto the general population are operating outside their God-given boundaries. Now, certainly one can personally choose not to eat such and such a plant or such and such an animal, but the institution the Noahic Covenant anticipates needs to operate within their God-given boundaries, and so human beings are free to eat plants and meat. Finally, what institutions or associations are necessary to fulfill the third aspect of the Noahic ethic, that is, to bring justice against destructive people who harm fellow human beings and thus hinder the work of families and those serving to feed them and contribute to their overall survival? What would you call those institutions? Well, it seems fitting to call these 
judicial institutions. And so I would contend that God's covenant with Noah is the actual starting point for the legitimacy of government. David Van Drennen writes this. He says, familial and enterprise associations can develop their own ways of resolving internal disputes, but many human conflicts require outside parties to bring resolution. Thus, judicial institutions become necessary to determine what sorts of harmful conduct require redress to resolve conflicts and to enforce appropriate penalties and remedies. These judicial institutions need not be arms of the state since private organizations can provide security, mediation, arbitration, and related services. But the need for such institutions presents a context in which civil government arguably becomes a morally plausible idea. So listen again to the verses that talk about this part of the ethic, this part of the covenant, this part of the obligation placed on humanity. God speaks, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. This is God's expectation of all humanity. This is the core of administering justice. This is what's called lex talionis. A person who harms another person deserves a proportionate penalty. So notice something in the Noahic Covenant. This is important. Notice something in the Noahic Covenant. We see here that God has not authorized judicial institutions, governments, to prosecute crimes against himself. The penal code of Genesis 9, the Noahic Covenant, adjudicates wrongs between fellow human beings not wrongs between human beings and God. Now, this doesn't mean that God grants a right to rebel against him, but it does mean God prohibits judicial institutions from vindicating God through retributive or punitive actions. Andrew Walker writes this. He says, the Noahic Covenant reveals that adequate social cooperation can occur apart from absolute agreement on religious matters for society to remain legitimate and ordered toward the common good. He continues, The Noahic Covenant implies that while society cannot exist without a common morality, it can exist without a common religion. Further, he writes, What this means practically is that only forms of worship that physically harm other persons should be restrained or punished, in light of the minimalist social order of Genesis 9. So it is my view that the Noahic Covenant, which is still binding today, essentially says to government, when it comes to religion, hands off. Don't promote it. Don't forbid it. Theological belief or religious belief is not the world the government is to operate in. And so I would, I would put a summary statement on this saying this, the government has a responsibility to create a modicum of social stability that allows even conflicting beliefs within a population to be held without fear of retributive action on the part of the state. Now, let's, let's push this a little bit further. Where would it be wise for government to intervene in religious matters according to the Noahic Covenant? I would suggest that when the religious practices bring harm to person or property. Now, this, is, this gets a little dicey because in our current 
cultural uh, climate, the word harm has been redefined. I've talked about that in, in talking about uh, cancel culture and critical theory and, and all the rest. So when I use the word harm here, I'm talking about the traditional use of the word. If there are religious practices by a community of people that bring harm to person or property, physical harm to person or property, then government has an obligation to get involved. For example, if bailism made a comeback and we saw the horrific practice of children being sacrificed to the god Moloch, it would be right for government to intervene. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So the Noahic covenant gives the state the responsibility to establish a common morality, not a common religion. It gives the state the responsibility to provide a modicum of social stability that allows even conflicting religious beliefs to be held without fear of retributive action on the part of the state. In other words, in the Noahic covenant, God created the conditions for pluralism. Now, before you object, let me quote Andrew Walker again. He writes, in the Garden of Eden, pluralism did not exist, and there will not be religious pluralism in the new creation. But nowhere in the interim era of the New Testament, in the New Testament age, is government tasked with the responsibility of upholding Christian orthodoxy or any religious orthodoxy as a way to mitigate the effects of sin, moral disagreement, and religious pluralism. Jonathan Lehman puts it this way. He says, the God of the Bible gives government's authority to prosecute crimes against human beings, not the authority to prosecute crimes against himself. So long as people remain unharmed, false religion should be tolerated publicly and privately. So in grounding religious liberty, religious liberty for all religions along theological lines, God through the Noahic covenant is saying to government, when it comes to religion, hands off, don't promote it. Don't forbid it. Instead, your job government is to create a modicum of social stability that allows even conflicting beliefs within a population to be held without fear of retributive action on the part of the state. Now, I'm guessing the Noahic Covenant has a lot more to say about religious liberty than you thought it would. If you want to read more about this, these are not original ideas. See the notes below. There are three books listed there, one by Andrew Walker, uh, one by David Van Drunnen, the other by Jonathan Lehman. There's over a thousand pages of reading there. Uh, You can dive into it. If you're looking for one to start with, Walker's is the shortest book, probably the easiest one to understand. Van Drunnen and and Lehman are a little bit longer, um, but it will certainly orient you. Um, to figuring out the place of politics in light of what scripture says. Next time, we're going to dive into the topic of how it is Christians or should Christians work for biblical conceptions of justice in the public square. Should Christians be doing that? Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.